Welcome to the ultimate crowdsourced personal finance show. This is your Friday Roundup. You're listening to Choose FI Radio. The blueprint for financial independence lives here. If you're looking to unlock the secrets to financial independence and early retirement, you're in the right place. Stay tuned and join a community of like-minded people who are getting off the hamster wheel and taking control of their lives in the pursuit of financial independence. Choose FI, your home for financial independence online. Okay, guys, you made it to the weekend. This is your Friday Roundup. Brad's here with me today, and we're going to be discussing your thoughts and ideas from the past week. Welcome to the show, guys. Brad, how are you doing today? I'm doing well, Jonathan. Yeah, everything's going great. I, uh, I'm actually a little bit sore today. I did a somewhat not frugal thing yesterday, and I started up uh, CrossFit. So one of my big pushes here in life is just to get much more physically fit, much more flexible, you know, just trying to stay healthy as I get older, frankly. And CrossFit is one thing that I always wanted to try. And I kind of made a little bargain with Laura to cut out some of the minor little frivolous things that I have going on in my life so I could mentally justify spending the money on this. And I mean, I'm really enjoying it. I did uh, just like a little couple week long intro course. And then I did my first real class yesterday. So yeah, I mean, I'm just kind of doing my thing here and doing that Brazilian Jiu Jitsu that I mentioned and which is kind of like if you listen to a bunch of podcasts, it seems to be another life superpower. And then throw in this CrossFit, throw in swimming. You know, I'm just just trying to stay healthy. So it's it's good stuff. So now that you've been doing the Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu for a while, would you agree with that general consensus? Is it a mega life hack? Yeah, you know, it does seem like it. It it's something that is like all-consuming. It's it's not just a physical discipline. It's it's certainly not just like. And this is no disrespect to Taekwondo or anything like that. But it's not just like punching and kicking. You're actually down on the floor grappling with another adult male, you know, or, or female as it may be, but, and it's, it's, it's like physical chess. So every little movement matters immensely. So like sometimes a couple inches, the difference between putting your weight a couple inches left or right makes a difference between something working or not working. So it's, it's this real interesting combination of physical and mental that I've never experienced before. And it's just cool. And and this is kind of like the larger issue and why it's actually kind of interesting to talk about. It's like, it's cool starting over at something and just being terrible at something that, as they call it in martial arts, it's the white belt mentality. So I'm not going to be good at jujitsu six months from now. I'm not going to be terribly good 16 months from now, but maybe 10 years from now, I'll be pretty darn good. So I mean, like that to me is a pretty cool way to approach life. I think that's the larger picture. So it's, it's been been something very enjoyable. And you do this one. This is a very frugal analog, a frugal win. You've mentioned it before. You actually do this in a Gracie garage, right? Yeah. So it's actually entirely free. I go to this one guy's house. It's under the greasy jujitsu umbrella, but it's just basically a group of people getting together and trying to learn greasy jujitsu. So yeah, I mean, it's literally $0. I go twice a week. And whereas I would pay 150 bucks a month to go to a regular jujitsu place, this is free. And it's, yeah, just a group of four of us 
just trying to get better. So it's definitely a frugal analog, to put it mildly. It's good stuff. Nice. Well, let's go ahead and hop right into this roundup. And let's talk just for a few minutes about the Monday episode, where we talked about order of operations, filling up your buckets. We have tried from essentially our first podcast to really tell a story. And ultimately, we feel that we're going to be able to flesh out these different frameworks for these different income brackets, 30,000, 50,000, 70,000, 150, 200, and then just blow the roof off 300,000 plus. And it doesn't really matter which one of those scenarios you fall in. At the end of the day, we all want to know that we are doing things in the most optimized way possible. At least once you're in the FI community, that is something that you care about. If you're not in the FI community and you're just grazing through life, you're just blowing through it, you haven't probably ever thought about it. But in our community, we're extremely concerned with, are we doing this in the most optimized way? And so Brad and I have tried to turn this into a story, have tried to turn it into a conversation, and we've tried very intentionally to create a platform that builds on itself. And where we can't provide that information accurately or as thoroughly as we'd like, we've brought in thought experts from our community to really fill in those gaps. And to a large degree, I believe that we've succeeded in, in carrying it to this point. And we have a lot of tools in our bat utility belt now, but it's time to really start to explore these different frameworks. And on Monday, what we did is we started to talk about with the tools that we've been talking about, how can you actually, what is the order that you need to use to fill up those buckets? And once we've had this conversation, it will then allow us to start working on those different frameworks and optimizing each individual scenario. Ultimately, the conversation was very simple, but there's so many nuances to that that I'm sure we'll need to address over the coming months. Right, Brad? Yeah, that certainly wasn't a comprehensive look at every single thing you need to know about all these different buckets. But it was a good intro. And, and I think it was I think it was helpful for the audience, certainly. And really, the, the overarching principle is max out your tax deferred items. So anything that lowers your taxable income in the current year using this FI concept, that's what we focus on. It's tax deferred. So anything that would be tax deferred. So 401k, 403b, 457, HSA, traditional IRA. Those are the five that that come to me just off the top of my head. So if you have access to any or all of those and you are in the position to max those out, that would be highly, highly recommended. So using the framework that I mentioned previously of you control what you can control. So you don't know what the tax rate is going to be 10, 20, 50 years from now. That is completely unknowable. But what you do know is that A, we're pretty smart here in the FI community and there's probably a pretty good way we're gonna figure out some hack, even if let's say the Roth IRA conversion ladder goes away someday, just hypothetically. So I think there's a pretty darn good chance that we're gonna figure out some way to outsmart the system. And B, if you lower your taxable income and thus your tax liability in the current year, that is controlling what you can control, right? So that is a direct savings today. And we think there's a high likelihood that you can potentially pull that money out without ever paying tax on it. And that's the hacks that I talked about a minute ago. So this is, to me, it's an absolute slam dunk to max out tax deferred items. I think when you're talking order of operations, that's the key unquestionably. So one of the things we're going to do and that we continue to do is we use our Facebook group to basically get feedback on the episode and find a way to dial in on collectively what you're thinking and how we can do a better job and what we can readdress on our Friday roundup. So Amy uh, left us this message and she says, my confusion comes with a traditional versus Roth IRA. The advice we heard in the past was to max out your Roth IRA after getting your employer's 401k match. So this is what we've been doing. I also max out my individual HSA. 
This will be our fourth year maxing out our Roth IRA. My husband doesn't get a 401k match, but we are contributing to that as well, but nowhere near maxing out either of them. The max he can put in is 25%. We are now interested in FIRE and confused as to what we should do. Our thought process is being able to pull money from the Roth IRA for our income until we can pull from our 401k. We would not get a tax benefit from a traditional IRA. I know we need to cut our expenses and get our savings rate up. It's at 25%-ish currently. I guess my question is, where should we be putting our money? Should we be trying to max out our 401k first with the goal to roll over to a traditional IRA when we leave employment into a backdoor Roth? I just don't see how we will have money to live on without the Roth IRA. Okay, I think we can do this question today, right, Brad? Yeah, a lot embedded in there, certainly. Yeah, absolutely. I think we're going to need to segment it one piece at a time, but I think it's something that will allow us to really dig into the weeds and have a conversation. So I'm excited about this. All right, Amy, I definitely agree that, to quote you here, the advice we heard in the past was to max out your Roth IRA after getting your employer's 401k match. And I agree that is the common sentiment. But I think what we're trying to argue here with FI generally is that we think a little bit differently. So I think if you go to 100 financial advisors, you're probably going to get that exact advice that you just recounted by well more than 50% of them. So just a guess, but I think that is common sentiment and it still is to this day. Please, first off, don't think you're doing anything wrong here. Nothing that you did is bad or is gonna harm you in the long term. You're saving a lot of money and that's fantastic. So you should be very, very proud of yourself. So please, I know it's easy to beat ourselves up when we're not doing something perfectly optimal, but I do stuff that's not optimal all the time and you just make the best decisions you can. So anyway, with that said, I think we would always say to max out, as, as I mentioned earlier in the podcast, max out the tax deferred items. So if you're not getting anywhere near the 401k limits, the 18,000 currently, I think you should be working towards maxing that out. To me, the Roth IRA right now is just not as important as the tax deferred items like the 401k and the traditional IRA if you are eligible for it. So I think that's step one. Next thing is you're maxing out your HSA, which is incredible. And we're gonna link to an article from the Mad Scientist where he says that the HSA is the ultimate retirement account, as we mentioned on episode 28 that, we, that we're going over here, that the HSA is perfect because it's tax-free in and tax-free out. So you're way ahead of the game there without question. Now, I think there might be like a slight mix-up though where you're saying our thought process is being able to pull money from the Roth IRA for our income until we can pull from our 401k. Now, I I guess I'm curious if you're talking about early retirement or not, or if this is like a a post 59 and a half thing. I can't determine from your question, but I'm curious if there's some either mix up or something I'm missing here, because really the only money that you can pull from your Roth IRA before you're 59 and a half is your actual contribution. So let's say the $5,500 in contributions you've been making every single year or whatever the limit was when, when you've been contributing. So it's hard to envision a scenario where you can live off just that money. So I think that there might be a slight mix up. And I'm curious if it's in regards to this Roth IRA conversion ladder. And you know that's a different animal entirely. That's kind of a play as we've discussed on previous podcasts. And those podcasts would be around uh, episode 17, 17R, maybe 18 as well. Uh, it's the ones with Mad Scientist and Go Currycracker and the associated 
roundups there. So I would definitely go back and listen to that. But the play there is to take your your traditional 401k and IRAs and actually do something that's kind of odd, which is forcing a taxable event. So normally that would be a bad thing because you're creating tax liability. You're creating taxable income, which leads to tax liability. And with that conversion, you're taking some amount that's sitting in your traditional IRA, your tax deferred, and basically turning into a Roth amount by paying the tax currently. Now, that's an interesting play because when you're at FI, and this is generally something you would do when, you're, when your actual income is very, very low. When you're at FI and your income is low and you create this taxable event, well, you still might pay just about nothing in tax because once you take out your standard deduction and your personal exemptions and all those kind of things, maybe child tax credits or something, your tax liability is zero or pretty darn close. So even though you're creating this taxable event, there's very little tax. So that's this beautiful play where it was tax deferred. You created a quote unquote taxable event, but yet you're paying no tax, right? So that's like best case scenario. Now with that conversion ladder, you're able to take those amounts that you converted out tax and penalty free after five years. So there's like a five year seasoning period on that conversion. And now, so that's really the whole play that we're going for here. But the key is kind of getting through those first five years. And I think that's what you're alluding to with taking your money out of the Roth IRA. And now again, when taking out your prior contributions, now not conversions, these, these words are very important. Your contributions, you can pull those out tax and penalty free at any time, but it's only 5,000 bucks a year that you've been putting in. So it's not big amounts here. And it's unlikely that that will get you through those first five years where you're doing that conversion ladder. So really the key is just having regular life savings. We alternately call them post-tax savings, taxable savings. There's a lot of confusion as to the terminology, but realistically, it's just your savings. And it doesn't matter if it's sitting under your mattress, if it's in a bank account making a tenth of 1%, or if it's in Vanguard VTSAX, it's just your regular life savings. And now presumably, if you're living a frugal lifestyle, if you're living a FI lifestyle, you're saving a boatload of money. And now I know you alluded to 25% currently, and sure, it would be ideal if you could get that up significantly. And, and hopefully listening to the show and researching this topic, you can start to get that up. But but it's still, it's, it's a very nice number to start with. But realistically, you're going to max out your 401k, you're going to max out whatever IRAs you're eligible to contribute to, your HSA, and then you should still have money left over, right? You're not going to blow that on Ferraris and, and expensive bottles of wine. You're going to save it. And that's just your regular life savings. So the hope is that you can get through those first five years with some combination of mostly those regular life savings and be maybe pulling out some of the contributions that you made previously to your Roth IRA. So I think that's a pretty good framework just to kind of talk about. I'm going to throw it over to Jonathan because I'm sure he has some points to clarify. Well, Brian, I don't think there's anything else to add to what you just said. That was a very thorough walkthrough of our general thought process on that question. But I do have a very interesting and compelling voicemail from one of our community members, Stephen, who has kind of had this question simmering over the last several months and finally decided to send it our way. So hang on just a second. Let me pull this up. Hey, Brad and Jonathan. My name is Stephen. I found JuzFi a few weeks ago and started my binge all the way from the beginning. I finally caught up about a week ago. I've had a question gnawing at me for a while now, since way back when the Roth conversion ladder was first introduced, and I think after today's episode is the right time to, to ask it. So here's my question. I'm striving for FI, 
But part of that is the desire to start a side gig business, whether through real estate or some other means. So what happens to the basic concept of choosing pre-tax and traditional IRA buckets instead of a Roth if there is a possibility I will have a moderate or even large stream of passive income? You can look at it this way. What are you, Brad and Jonathan, going to do if ChooseFI blows up and starts dropping, say, 50 or even 100K a year into your lap? I would love to see this perspective of passive income, side gig money, and how that changes the the conversation we have, if at all. I love what you guys are doing. I've shared Choose FI with my parents and siblings, and they are hooked to keep up the good work. Steven, I love the question. And frankly, it is something that I think about constantly. So the construct in FI is basically that we believe that we are going to be earning more during our income years than we are at retirement. So our income that will be taxed on will be less. And if it's not less by normal means, it'll be because we found the stealth wealth lane that we can sneak into and we will be able to control our tax rate using tools that you should now at this point be aware of. And, and we've already fleshed those out. But what if you blow up the model and forget 50 to 100,000, let's say you're making 200,000 a year, $300,000 a year, 400, you know, whatever. Let's say you just completely blow everything up. Your point makes sense. If you're right Right now in a 15 or 10% marginal tax bracket, but down the road, you're going to be in a 40% marginal tax bracket. That would have been the right play to go ahead and flesh out the Roth. But there's some other things to think about here. One, there's no guarantee that you will absolutely make it. And it, there's this old adage, one in the hand is better than two in the bush. You're essentially willing to take less now, assuming that you're going to make more later. And there's no guarantee of that. I prefer to absolutely just control everything now by putting taxes to the side, and I will figure out that later on. And if I have the wonderful problem of making too much money down the road, I'll cross that bridge when I get there. The other half of that is you're not necessarily ruling this particular tool, the Roth out. Let's say you get to the point where your business is now making $100,000, $300,000. You still have access to the backdoor Roth. So you'll have ways of getting your money in there. And then for me, the Roth is kind of small fries at this point, especially if that actually happens, because at that point, I'm now looking at it as going back to this last episode, I'm looking at it as a potential inheritance vehicle for my kids, potentially. It's not necessarily something that we're going to need ourselves, but I might look at it as a tool or as a tax diversity play down the road. So those are my unique thoughts on that particular situation. This is a really interesting question for Brad, because this is essentially where he found himself a few years ago. Brad, what are your thoughts on this particular question? Yeah, I love this question by Stephen. And yeah, to me, it's more of like a much larger picture issue. So the Roth, while that's an important conversation and it is it is nice to get these things right at the margins but we're only talking fifty five hundred dollars a year i kind of want to look at this from the larger picture which is all right what if you all of a sudden start making more money than than you anticipated in fi or just in general and you like jonathan kind of alluded to i have some fairly successful websites and the likelihood of me making zero dollars when I'm at Phi is very, very slim. So this is quite pertinent to me and, and my life. I think the biggest thing to focus on, like we always talk about, is just living a somewhat frugal lifestyle and cutting down expenses. That is the bedrock of everything we're doing here. While I would love in my perfect world when we're talking about these Phi hacks, and, and to me, there are many superpowers that Phi enables you to have. It's one of them is potentially getting tax-free or pretty darn close to tax-free money out of your 401k or tax-deferred items. Another one is, at least under the current construct, maybe being able to get healthcare for free or pretty close to free 
because its subsidies are based on income, right? So there are many people in the FI community who are getting healthcare for close to free, even though they have wealth, they don't have income, right? And the third leg that we've kind of talked about of, of these super hacks is potentially getting college for free or close to free. If you can kind of hack the FAFSA form or maybe you don't have quote unquote income, which might qualify your children for full tuition or room and board free because it doesn't look like you have very much money. Now, so putting ethics of any of this stuff aside, because that's neither here nor there, there are rules to these programs. And if people in the FI community can qualify for them, then they get those benefits. So those are three significant benefits. Now, if I am unlikely to ever have zero income or close to zero income, it's very unlikely that I'm going to be able to succeed with, with those three things. But that said, you can still look at an episode like the one with Physician on Fire, where he makes a lot of money. And we don't we don't know what the number is, but I would imagine it's north of $300,000 easily. And he's getting to FI on a very abbreviated path. Because when you have a lot of money, you can save a boatload. Because again, the bedrock is frugality, right? So if your lifestyle costs you $50,000, regardless of whether you make 80 or 400, well, if you're making 400, even if you pay a lot of taxes, you're going to save a boatload of money in all your 401ks, 403bs, all that stuff, but just in your regular taxable savings, your regular life savings. So that's going to expedite your path to FI very, very quickly. I think my kind of large picture here is as long as I have my expenses under control, that if I'm making money, well, I'm not going to cry about it because I don't get healthcare for free or I don't get college for free. I'm going to pay off my mortgage. I'm going to continue dumping money in Vanguard every month and maxing out all my tax deferred items. And I'm going to just keep accumulating assets. And that's that's a good problem to have. Right. So that's not a negative to me. Well, sure. In my perfect world scenario, I'd love to have all these amazing fi hacks and brag about how I outsmarted the system. Well, I still wouldn't mind having a couple million bucks in the bank. Right. So I'm not going to complain about that. So I think that's kind of my my summation on this is we just we do the best we can with the information we have at hand. And for me, it's maxing out my tax deferred items. It's saving as much money as I possibly can by keeping my expenses reasonably low and just being smart about knowing how rules are changing and what we may or may not need in the future. So I think that's my mental construct of how I approach this. And yeah, Jonathan, I'd love to hear your thoughts. You know, I'm thinking for that specifically for that super high income bracket. So $300,000 plus, I think the the underlying principles remain the same, but there there's some different nuances there. The things that you're going to put emphasis on are different. They don't need to worry about things necessarily like a side hustle if they're already earning that income. To me, the focus, the optimized lane for them would be hitting that fine number as quickly as possible. And then whatever that is, I would imagine for like a POF type income, it's net worth of $3 million. That gives you a 3% withdrawal rate of roughly right around $90,000 a year. And then if you're able to do what we're all doing, which is focus on crushing your expenses. So you have no mortgage, you have no car payment, you have no debt whatsoever. That $90,000 is essentially all available for spending. It's not $90,000 of income. It's $90,000 of spending. You're going to be able to live this optimized, streamlined, stealth wealth lifestyle, and you can get there in 
in no time at all. And then from there, you can make a choice because you can get to that path within a five to 10 year window very, very easily at that income level. From there, you can do whatever you want. I mean, if you want to keep earning, that's fine. And if you want to pull the trigger on fire early retirement, that's fine too. So I think for that particular bracket, that is, that's the story. And if they decide to go ahead and throw some money in a Roth as well, that's fine. But it's not going to be a big part of their portfolio. And even though they spend a lot of time focusing on how to get things into a, a backdoor Roth, it's not really a necessary part of their FI plan. Right. But it's nothing to pass up, certainly, as you're kind of alluding to there. If you can qualify for it, then and those are the rules, then go for the backdoor Roth, right? But in the grand scheme of things, in a $3 million portfolio, the $5,500 you're putting into your Roth is, is not a huge deal. But again, we're trying to optimize the best we can with the rules that are at hand. So, And like Jonathan said, under that scenario of this person having a lot of money, if you have $90,000 to spend in a year and you have no mortgage, no debt, no car payments, that is a boatload of money. I don't know how you spend that much, honestly. I mean, that's $7,500 a month, and that is a heck of a lot of money. At this point, we're nowhere near that lifestyle, and I feel like we live pretty decadently at this point. So, yeah, I mean, that's that's not a bad problem to have for the high-income earner. Awesome. Okay, Brad, so let's take a second and talk about our frugal wins of the week, and we had a bunch of them. I wanted to start with Eric from our Facebook community, and he says, holy five, Batman. Hey, Brad and Jonathan. This is Eric in Chicago, and I have a frugal win of the week for you guys. A bit of background first. Right now, I make about $38,500 a year before taxes, and I live in a studio apartment in the uptown neighborhood of Chicago for about $725 a month, all utilities included except for electric and Wi-Fi. For those who are not familiar with Chicago, that's about five miles north of downtown and three quarters of a mile north of Wrigley Field. About two weeks ago, I got a letter in my mailbox from my landlord saying that my rent was going up to $760 a month. I thought about it and decided that it was too much. I went out looking for something cheaper and boy, how did I find one. I posted on a Facebook group about people who are looking for roommates and houses and a guy messaged me saying that he was looking for a roommate. He said the rent was about $500, all utilities included except for electric and Wi-Fi. I said to myself, okay, this place must be a piece of crap. We're in a bad neighborhood. But last night I went out to see the place and it is literally less than a block from the beach in a really safe neighborhood. And most importantly, Jonathan, it is only a mile and a half away from Aldi. So I'm moving there when my lease is up at the end of July. I found a $500 apartment in Chicago. This will help me so much on my journey to FI. I'll keep you all posted on the Facebook group. And uh, one of my goals is to be the first person to do the FI scream on Choose FI. Keep up the good work, guys. And Eric wrote us an email giving us a little bit more information. And I loved how he phrased his, his next actionable step. Now to increase my skills and find a higher paying job. That is awesome, Eric. That is definitely <laughs> FWOTW Batman. And I want to give a shout out to Adam West, who did just pass away this week. The greatest Batman of all time, 1960s. That show changed my life. Did you ever watch that show, Brad? I Yeah, I did. I think back in the day, very little. <laughs> so I'm not going to. All right. And one more I have for you before I send this over to Brad. The Instant Pot is becoming the fan favorite of the FI community. And we got this message after we mentioned it the previous week. So it's getting featured again. And believe it or not, there is no sponsorship here. We do not have any sort of arrangement with the Instant Pot. But this is from Tamara. And she said, yes, I love my Instant Pot so much. I was so excited to hear it mentioned on 
the Friday Roundup. I bought mine about 10 months ago and use it almost every day. I was actually listening to the podcast this morning while making a homemade spaghetti sauce in my Instant Pot. I was able to saute the ground beef right in the pot. Then I drained it and used the pot on the slow cooker setting to cook it until dinner time. It saves on dishes since I can saute, pressure cook, slow cook, and keep food warm in it all in the same pot. Of course, I'm making a big batch of sauce so I can freeze some for another meal sometime. We even made our Thanksgiving turkey in it, something we used to own an electric roasting pan for. Tamara, thanks for sharing. That is awesome. This thing, if there are the gadgets of Fi, if that is an episode, there is no more compelling case for the uh, the, the top spot on that list currently, maybe Brad's egg maker, but yeah. <laughs> I can imagine than the Instant Pot right now. It is it is owning that list and I do not own one. So I'm, I'm, I've been looking into it and there's apparently like an entire culture around this thing with recipes, Pinterest boards, the, the whole nine yard, Brad. It's really remarkable. Yeah, there's a Facebook group. I think they have hundreds of thousands of members or something insane like that. So evidently I'd never heard of the Instant Pot before, but I think we're going to have to buy one. I know, uh... <laughs> is it on the list right now? The 72 hour list? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> It's definitely going on the list. So we'll see if, if Laura pulls the trigger on that. She's obviously the, the chef in the house. So we will see. And yeah, actually, Anne-Marie had a frugal win of the week on our Facebook group as well. And it was, I raised a deductible on my homeowner's insurance and saved $255 on my next year's premium. That's incredible. That's that's a heck of a win just for wow. raising the deductible. And what's funny is my frugal win of the week is actually tied into insurance as well. I mentioned previously, I think on last week's roundup, that I moved my homeowner's insurance as well. It's kind of an unusual homeowner's insurance through this uh, Mutual Assurance Society of Virginia. And I'm going to wind up saving somewhere on the order of like 70% on my homeowner's insurance. But the interesting thing happened was I had all my insurance with MetLife. So I had my auto, home, and umbrella insurance. And somewhat unsurprisingly, they jacked up the rates on my auto insurance and my umbrella insurance because I don't have the home policy with them anymore. So it was clawing back a lot of my savings. So I did what I should have done many, many years ago and price compared with Geico. And there's this elephant auto insurance here in Virginia. And I went up moving to Geico and saving 47% on my car insurance. And it was incredible. I mean, just incredibly easy. I'm up and running. I already canceled my MetLife insurance. And now I'm just looking to get this umbrella insurance, which I'm going to either go with Geico or my new homeowners. And that'll probably wind up saving some money as well. So I think the long story short is you see all these commercials, especially for Geico. And I just never went to their site and price compared because I was either just too lazy or or because of my multi-policy discount with MetLife, I, I just never got a quote. And it was it was silly. And I threw away a lot of money over the years. So I would definitely highly recommend people at least just go get a quote. It takes a couple of minutes. That's really cool. I, I need to do it. It's time for me to price compare my homeowner's insurance. I have not been holding them accountable and they've been raising it about 10 bucks a month every single year. So uh, I will get on I will get on the bandwagon and definitely do that. Eli just had a newborn baby. Newest son is two weeks old. He got his social security number in the mail. One hour later, his 529 plan account was established and funded. Well done, Eli. The fire is spreading. Second generation fire. That is awesome, my friend. Well done. Yeah, Eli, congratulations. That's great stuff. We met Eli at Camp Mustache. So yeah, it's good to hear from you and congrats to you and the family. And yeah, I just wanted to quickly mention that we're getting all these frugal wins of the week from our Facebook group. So I know we've mentioned this in the last couple Friday roundups, but this group is incredible at this point. We have well over 700 members and nice private Facebook group where there's 
dozens of conversations going on every single day. So the easiest way to join is just head over to choosefi.com slash Facebook. You'll just enter your email address. We'll send you an email with the link to the private group and you're all set. So yeah, we'd love for you to join us. And one thing I want to mention about that, I think that maybe a few weeks ago we came off as hating on the 529 and that is not Brad or my position. In fact, more and more my position is that we need to do a full podcast on the vehicles that you have available and actually take the time to walk through the pros and the cons and the scenarios in which you will win by funding that. So that is on the burner and we'll, we'll definitely set up a plan to address that in the coming months. Definitely a useful tool to look at. Okay, so we told you last week that Millionaire Educator is coming on as an in-house expert and he's going to be helping us handle different cases dealing with teachers and also with pensions. And we had a question from Scott that we received a few weeks ago and we sent that over to Millionaire Educator and he had some very useful feedback on that. Brad, did you want to read the question? Yeah, sure. So Scott's question was, I have a question on early retirement and 457 slash pensions. I do have a 457, as does my wife, and we are also both in state pension funds. Because we are not close to FI, I'm wondering if one way I can retire early is to use 457 accounts to bridge us until our pensions kick in. Right now, we are early 30s and doing well, and our pensions are a function of how many years we work. Our final average salary, highest five years, and age which we start taking it. The earliest we can take them right now is 54, but that's subject to change if market conditions warrant a legal change to the pension program. I'd really like to quit regular work in about 10 years, then make it 15 to 20 years on my 457, before starting to take my pension. Do you have any thoughts on this or resources to help me think through this? That's a great question and frankly one that probably all by myself I would have been stumped by. Uh, But Millionaire Educator has actually gone through this scenario in his own life and has some wonderful feedback. So we'll go ahead and play this. This is Ed Mills of The Millionaire Educator and I wanted to weigh in on the question about using 457 money as a source of bridge funds to help a reader make it to his uh, pension availability date. And I'd like to start by saying, yes, I think this is a great idea for uh, 457 money. And as uh, I mentioned on our podcast is that 457 money is special in that once you separate service, you can get access to this money without penalty. It would just come in as a uh, as regular income. So yeah, this would be a good way to retire early and start pulling money. And I use it as part of uh, my early retirement plan. Let's see, we have a few details about the reader, but um, I'm going to have to make a few assumptions. I'm going to assume that both he and his wife are 33 and they both said that they want to retire after 10 years of work. So they're going to retire at age 43. We're not sure about when they're going to take their pension. I'm just going to assume it's age 60. And I'm also going to assume that they're both going to fully fund their 457 accounts with $18,000 each over the next 10 years. So over the next 10 years, they're going to put in $36,000 combined in their 457. Before I start laying out any numbers, I want you to understand that I I view this um, adult word problem as having two potential scenarios. And it depends on whether they're in what I would deem a good 457 plan or a subpar 457 plan. I'm going to assume right off the bat that they're in a good plan. And what that means, it has low costs and they have index funds available to them. And for the return in that, I'm going to assume a 7% return. That's the number John Bogle's thrown around for a few years as a, a safe estimate of return. And so over 10 years of saving $36,000 at age 43, they should have roughly a half million dollars, $500,000. I would say that is an enviable position to be in, be 43 years old and have 
fifty or five hundred thousand dollars that you can tap? And I would say yes, they could make that stretch over seventeen years. I guess the thing they're gonna have to think about is do they wanna just adhere to the four percent rule and only draw down twenty thousand a year on that? Yeah, that that's not a ton of money, but it can cover a lot of daily expenses, depending on where you live. But they're not limited to only taking 4% a year because they are going to have pensions available in 17 years. And they also have the possibility to work again if they'd like. Let's take a look at the other scenario. Let's say they have a, a subpar 457 plan, which I would characterize by, you know, it has high expenses. You know, maybe it's got uh, poor fund choices. And, and as a teacher, this is what I see a lot of. The uh, return assumption I make there is 2% because in that type of scenario, I'm just going to use a stable value fund. I realize I'm probably losing money to inflation, but hey, I can't have it all, right? So after 10 years of saving 36000 a year, they would have roughly $400,000. Okay, not as much as 500000 but still pretty good chunk of change. They could decide how they're going to tap that money, but it's it's a good problem to have. I would say either way, they can make it work. Depending, it doesn't matter what 457. Obviously, I prefer a better plan. Going forward from there, I guess they would have to decide how am I going to, what am I going to do with this money? Like 17 years is a long time to have it sitting in cash, getting 2%. In my own case, I would probably consider jumping to a job in year nine or 10 or at some point to roll that money over to a better 457 plan. I would, I would, I would do a mercenary move and go work somewhere short time to do that. You know, they could, like I said before, they can always work. You know, when you work and you already got money coming in, you can then basically go to a 100% savings rate. So, yeah, 43 and you're young enough to still work and you got four hundred to $500,000, you can make this work. I hope this helps you work your plan. All right, guys, the fire is spreading. How impressive was that analysis? Yeah, that was cool. Really greatly appreciate Ed Mills doing that. It's always nice to have these in-house experts, you know? Absolutely. So, Scott, I hope that helps you with your decision tree and how you're going to go about uh, tackling this problem. I, I think it's a great problem to have. I think you have a lot of options. I love the idea of the mercenary move. That That is that is fantastic. And it implies that you have control over your life and you can make decisions based on what will actually help your family grab that control back. So uh, one thing that comes to mind, there's something here. Somebody called it the Starbucks play. And one of the things that you need to do these rollovers is access to a 401k. And apparently Starbucks gives you access to your 401k starting with your first day of employment. Uh, so there's no, is it a vesting period or anything like that? You just get access to the 401k on day one. And someone was pitching me on this idea of Starbucks being the last job you ever work in the fire community. I'm using Starbucks as, as an example. It just works because you get access to the 401k so quickly. But let's say uh, you're early retired and then now you want access to your 401k money and you don't have a Roth conversion under your belt. You go back to work at Starbucks because they need some help over Christmas time or seasonal work or whatever it is. And one of the reasons that's so interesting is because of another thing that we mentioned on a Friday, Friday roundup a month or so ago called the age 55 rule. So if you participate in a company retirement plan, such as a 401k, there's a way you can take a distribution and get out of paying the 10% early distribution penalty if you're under the age of 59 and a half at the time of the withdrawal, and this is called the age 55 rule. So basically you need to be at a company that has a 401k and if you retire in the year that you turn age 55, you can get access to those withdrawals tax and penalty free. And now you're in the year that you turn 55 years old or older, you now have access to all of your 401k money, essentially four and a half years sooner than you would have 
if you didn't know about this particular hack. And it's this interesting little mercenary move that you can tuck in your back pocket if you need it. Uh, so we got a voicemail from Sarah Ellen, who has a website at sarahellenhutchison.com, and she had some great tips for us. She wanted to talk to us about some frugal analogs for acting as a solo entrepreneur. Uh, she, her focus is in the law space, so for lawyers, but I think there's some carryover into that we can all use as we're maybe thinking about starting a side hustle or a professional business. And then she also had some tips for consumers with regards to credit card and credit card protection. So we're going to go ahead and play this now. And I think there's some great stuff here. Hi, Brad and Jonathan. This is Sarah Ellen Hutchison. I'm a consumer protection lawyer in Seattle, and I have some practice hacks for all the lawyers and other self-employed people out there. Lawyers know that it costs a lot just to show up and keep up at a tall building firm, as I like to call it. It's expensive to commute downtown. It's expensive to dress for success every day. It's expensive to eat out downtown. And you have quite a bit of lack of freedom uh, when you are working for a medium or large law firm. You can make a very good income working for yourself if you have a low overhead law practice and no employees, and it can be done. I've been doing it for seven years. Basically, the the hack is kind of a non-hack. You just keep your overhead low and your lifestyle simple, even as your practice grows. So you start with a virtual office, develop the discipline to work from home so you're not shelling out hundreds of dollars or more for rent every month, because that is a terrible way to siphon off your money. Many lawyers will be happy to let you borrow a conference room if you need one, and even borrow an office that no one is using if you occasionally need to have that tall building downtown presentation, which occasionally you need. It's there and you probably won't have to pay for it. Why pay for that all the time if you're not using it every day? A lot of people will tell you if you start a solo law practice that you need all this expensive practice management software and you need expensive subscriptions for research and you don't need any of that. I've never had any of that. You can do pretty much everything in Excel, in Word, and free with Google and Google Scholar, which is an excellent research tool. There's a lot of great lawyers who use that. Why pay more if you don't have to? You don't need a receptionist. You can have a Vonage number or a Google number. You can have it forward to your cell phone. You can get visual voicemails. You can see right away if you need to, need to return the call or ignore it and keep working. And you can also take advantage of plenty of free CLEs so you're not spending a lot of money to meet your yearly CLE requirements. As a consumer protection lawyer, I also have some tips for people who are not lawyers and who are trying to use credit in a responsible way to do all the fun travel hacking that we like to do. There's a lot of factors that go into the credit score and they make it very mysterious and they sprinkle all kinds of fairy dust on it and they spit a score out. But the worst thing for your credit score is a late payment. So you really got to be on top of that stuff. And if you're wanting to open up a bunch of credit cards, get your points, check your credit report first and make sure there isn't anything lurking on there that you have not heard about. Oftentimes collection agencies might put a medical debt on there without telling you, without your ever getting a bill. Or you may see an address or a name or a social security number that you don't recognize and it's clearly not you. 
if anything like that is on your credit report, you, you could have a computer mix up at the credit bureau and you should dispute that in writing. That's not the kind of thing you should take to a credit repair place because they will just siphon out your pockets and not really do anything for you. So beware of that. So those are my tips. If you have any other questions, you should seek legal advice from a lawyer in your own local area. And if you're interested in learning about these things in a very general educational way only, you can look at my website, sarahellenhutchison.com. Thanks, guys. Keep up the good work. Yeah, this was a really good voicemail by Sarah Ellen. I definitely enjoyed it. And we definitely will link to her website in the show notes. She sent me some articles that I think are especially pertinent. So I'll, I'll link to those. But but the larger issue is, and this isn't just related to lawyers, whereas you know, she obviously is a lawyer and she's talking about specific items for lawyers, but it is more much more general advice about A, keeping your expenses low, and B, just kind of finding frugal analogs, as Jonathan likes to call them, of ways to outsmart the system while still being and appearing professional. So her idea of renting out a conference room, well, you don't need to pay rent every month for an expensive office, not only an office, but then a conference room as well. You can just find a local law firm to rent it out from or find a co-working space. That's actually what I do. I, I generally work from home, but I found a co-working space here in Richmond that is incredibly in expensive. It, it literally cost me $59 a month to have 24 hour a day access to this co-working space. And it's a small little place. It's not like one of these hip co-working spaces that have beer kegs and ping pong tables and tons of people and activity. It's just kind of like a chill place that is very quiet. Few people are there, but it has everything I need. And it does have a conference room. I think I'm allowed to rent it out for like, it's something inexpensive, like $10 an hour or something like that. So if I ever needed a conference room for some reason, well, I pay my $59 a month and I could rent this conference room whenever I want it, but I'm not paying for it. So I think that's like a larger FI issue of keep your structural monthly expenses low, but keep your options open and always be looking for okay, I may need this, but I'm not going to buy it now. I just know that I have options to buy it or to rent it in the future. So I think that's my big takeaway from her voicemail. And I thought it was it was very interesting. So thank you. Yeah. And I love those tips, uh, you know, especially for the high income earners. You don't think about how much it is actually costing you to just go to your job, how much you have to pay just to go to work. And I think lawyers are one of the more extreme examples of that. You're held to a very high standard. You're expected to have a very good lifestyle that in many cases you simply can't afford due to the amount of loans that you have. You're expected to have extremely nice clothes or they need to be pressed at all times. You need to have the nice car and probably so more than even physicians, you are judged if you don't care to that particular standard. So I think there's value to looking at this from another perspective. And I think it's interesting that in the FI community, I don't need my lawyer to have any of that. I don't need my accountant to have any of that. And I don't need my doctor to have any of that. In fact, I get a kick knowing that they're on this, they're operating from the same framework that I am. But we're a pretty small community in a very large world. So the rest of you have to deal with this outside of that spectrum. But isn't that funny how that that really is like an actual real thing, right? Like realtors are a perfect example. Like most realtors don't make that much money, but most of them are driving around in a Lexus or a Mercedes, right? Like Jonathan, I'm sure you've seen that all the time. Like it's a profession that's based on optics. And unfortunately, there are a lot of these things. It's we as a society think of people in terms of, oh, they're driving an expensive cars, so they must be successful. So 
you don't see too many financial advisors or lawyers or realtors or all these other industries that are based on optics driving around in a 2003 Honda Civic like I, like I am, right? So it's just kind of an interesting side tangent. But Sarah Ellen also mentioned just in passing about travel rewards. And we actually don't have time to do a travel rewards question today. But but since she did bring it up, I did want to mention if you haven't heard our episode on travel rewards, it's episode nine. I think it's about the best introduction to travel rewards in general. And you can also check out our top recommended cards and our other articles on the topic if you had to choosevi.com forward slash travel. You know, if I had a financial advisor or if I were interviewing a financial advisor, I think my interview question would be, what's your savings rate? <laughs> yeah, that would, that would be awesome. <laughs> okay, guys. So now, first time ever, Brad teased this last week. Chad told us that it was one of his life goals to get a chance to tackle the hot seat questions. And he's a member of our community. He's an active member on our Facebook group. Uh, he's on every single comment strand. He has lots of great ideas, lots of great feedback. He's a creative thinker. And he's someone, frankly, that we're both excited to hear what he gets excited about. And we wanted to make this a reality. So we sent it over to him. And now we're going to get a chance to go ahead on a Friday roundup to explore that with him. You ready for this, Brad? Yeah, let's do it. In a world drowning in debt and rampant consumption, trapped by the chains of lifestyle inflation, these questions highlight the secrets of those who have broken free. Welcome to the Choose FI Hot Seat. Oh, man, I'm excited for this. All right, Brad, go ahead and kick this thing off. All right, Chad, question number one, your favorite blog of all time. Thank you guys for inviting me to the hot seat. Uh, my favorite blog is Budgets Are Sexy by Jay Money. I love his millionaire updates, and he's kind of inspired me to go ahead and try to shoot for millionaire status as well. Yeah, that's a, that's a really good one. Jay Money's been in this space for a while. He's really transformed the way that many people, especially millennials, look at personal finance, and he turned it into something that is cool. So uh, especially budgets. And that is not the way that the general world looks at budgets. So I think that that was a much needed conversation. And I think he's done a great service to the FI community by really starting that conversation. Yeah, cool is a, is a good way to describe Jay Money. Uh, if you've ever seen him at a conference or anything, he is like the life of the party. People just flock to him. It's just one of those charismatic people. And we're going to actually have him on the podcast in the next couple of months. I'm not sure exactly when, but we actually wanted to talk about, about giving back and how people in the FI community who have an abundance of, of wealth can give back to the community at large or just philanthropy in general. And Jay is doing some really great things over at Rockstar Finance with his Rockstar Community Fund, and we're definitely gonna explore that with him. What if we did like a second generation fire scholarship fund like 10 years from now? How cool would that be to feature different applications and stories of game plans that second generation fire has created and then help fund those in some way? How awesome would that be? Yeah, let's, let's do it. That's the first I've ever heard of this, but yeah, let's do it. It just came to me this good. morning. It just nice. happened. Inspired. <laughs> nice. <laughs> I'm on board. All right. Question number two, your favorite article of all time. Um, my favorite article is from Millennial Money Man, and his income reports was where I first got introduced to bloggers who actually share their income and how they make money blogging. And that's been inspirational to me as well and makes me want to learn how to make money online through blogging and other uh, freelancing sources. I have not checked that out. Are you aware of that, Brad? 
Nope, never heard of that site, but yeah, Chad, we'll check it out for sure, and we'll link to it in the show notes. And everyone, if you want to get our show notes, the easiest way is to head over to chooseify.com slash subscribe, and you just enter your email in, and you will then get an email every single time that we post a new podcast. So it'll send you a link to the show notes so you don't have to go searching for them on our site. It'll just end up in your inbox. So yeah, just chooseify.com slash subscribe. All right, Chad, question number three, your favorite life hack. Favorite life hack would be using Swagbox. Basically, it's online surveys and watching videos, and you get paid for it. Uh, you can let the videos run in the background, and then you can trade your Swagbox in for uh, Amazon, Walmart, and Starbucks gift cards, and that's how I save cash. Oh, okay, cool. Yeah, this is interesting. I was... Uh... And I wonder if you were to do that with any sort of level of consistency, you could probably even set that up as a business, right, Brad? There's no real reason that you couldn't. And then you could use that to then get your first business credit card, which could then be your portal into Travel Rewards, uh, the business line. Yeah, that's a good call, Jonathan. A lot of people want to get access to business credit cards because the bonuses are frankly incredible. And people either, A, don't have businesses, aren't comfortable opening them as a sole proprietor. So yeah, that's a cool, cool little hack. I like that. All right, Chad, question number four, your biggest financial mistake. Uh, my biggest financial mistake was going into debt after paying off my car. I went and took out another car loan and made every mistake in the book when I bought the new to me used car. I'm still kicking myself in the head for going back into debt after I paid off a car and I'd already co-signed for another car from a friend from a long time ago. Yeah, that's painful. And most of first generation fire has been there at some point. So I promise you that uh, you're in good company. But the good news is uh, you got time to clean this up and you'll be in much better shape going forward with that knowledge of mind. So you got it. You can only control what you can control. All right, Chad, question number five, the advice you would give your younger self. Advice for my younger self would be don't take out student loans again and don't try to be a hero and help so many people when you're still working yourself out of debt and trying to uh, solve everybody's financial problems. Absolutely. Uh, student loans are something that I'm trying to learn about so I can really help the next generation and, and whether they be first generation fire or second generation fire, the people that are coming behind us, trying to help them find a smarter way of doing that. Uh, that frankly, I just didn't know was there. I didn't feel like I could achieve. And, and it is doable, but you got to have somebody model it for you. So hopefully we can create this baseline of information that feels achievable uh, for those that are coming after us. The other half of that is helping people when you're still trying to help yourself. And I think that is a conversation that has to be had. It's so important. And I'm the same way. I want to help everybody. I, I really do. And sometimes you just can't. Sometimes you do have to be able to just say no. And especially while you're, you've got the cheetahs chasing you, as Dave Ramsey says, and you're trying to just get to debt free. We're not even talking about financial independence. We're just talking about you trying to get out of the mountain of debt that you may be buried under you're really not in a position to help other people. And you do have to focus on being able to take care of your family first and foremost. And I think that once you're past debt-free and now you're working to FI, I think that that construct changes slightly. And now you have to ask yourself, and this is again a conversation, but how hardcore do I want to be on this FI path? Am I willing to slow down by 5 10% and, and give back during the process and help other people? And that's a very valuable conversation, but I think it's a different conversation than the one where you are buried under debt and you're just making it from one paycheck to the next. And you're doing that via credit cards. And in the meantime, you're trying to help everybody around you. That is not sustainable and it has to stop. 
Yeah. And Chad, it sounds like you obviously have a big heart and uh, maybe on some weird level that's gotten you in trouble in the past. You know, I'm not sure, obviously, the details of this, but you did mention previously the co-signing on on a loan or a car loan. And that kind of thing is just very dangerous. I'm not sure there's ever an instance where I would, where I would co-sign on anyone's loan. I, I think that is one of the surest recipes for financial disaster, just because you're putting your financial life in someone else's hands. And if they needed you to co-sign anyway, they're probably not great financially. So while this is, it's hard to give blanket advice, I hate to do that in, a, in an area where I don't have all the facts, I can say very generally, it's a bright line for me, bright line test. Do not co-sign for a loan unless there's some ex hugely extenuating circumstances and and you're 100% positive that it's going to be paid. But I think that that should just be a real general rule of thumb for everyone out there is do not co-sign on a loan. I think the biggest way, Chad, that you and people out there can help everyone else is by trying to be supportive and to educate them. Right? We have been let in on this life superpower with FI, and we all know how transformative this can be. The other half of that is let's say you are actually giving somebody a loan. This is a very delicate balance here. And, and I will just say that mentally in my mind, when I am loaning someone money, I have already written that money off in my mind. Now, if I get it back, great. I would love to get it back in every case. But you need to realize when you're loaning someone money, especially as it as it deals with your finances, you're essentially saying goodbye to that. And I think that changes the calculus. So if you're not willing to accept the fact that that money is not coming back to you, don't loan the money. It'll ruin everything. It will just be willing to say no. But if you're financially in, an, in a place to help somebody and you want to do it and you want to frame it as a loan, that's fine. But in your mind, I think for your sanity, for your relationship, you need to be willing to write that off. And if you're not, don't do the loan. Don't do it. It's just, it's a dangerous place. And, and if it comes back, great. And if I'm wrong, great. But I think from a mental perspective, from a preserving relationship perspective, that's the bright line for me. Am I okay never seeing this again? And, and if you can say yes to that, then maybe, maybe do the loan. Yeah, that's good. All right, Chad, thanks for being on the hot seat. It was really great to hear from you and to talk through your answers. And yeah, let us know how people can find you, where they can reach out to you. Uh, if you want to get a hold of me, I usually hang around on Choose That Five Facebook group, or you can check out my blog at littlebrotherlifecoach.com, or I'm also on Twitter, and that's Chad Methner, it's M-E-T-H-N-E-R-L-B-L-C at Twitter. Thanks for having me on the hot seat, guys. Really appreciate it, and love the podcast. All right, awesome, Chad. And yeah, we will link to your website and your Twitter profile in the show notes so everybody can find you. Or as you mentioned, the easiest place is just the Chooseify Facebook group, which again is chooseify.com forward slash Facebook. Okay, so we got a voicemail from Aaron in San Diego a couple weeks ago, and he had some information that he thought we could use uh, when talking about how to view financial advisors in the FI community. And it's something that we really haven't spoken about. So I think that this is a conversation worth having. Hey guys, this is Aaron in San Diego. Really loving the podcast. You're doing great work. Uh, I work in finance, uh, financial services, and I wanted to hopefully provide an extra layer of depth to a couple of the points that you've brought up. I'm just going to focus on one today just for the sake of time, but I hope that it'll add some value to your listeners and to you guys. Uh, one thing that's been overlooked when working with a financial advisor, I know how you generally demonize the financial services industry, and that that's probably well-deserved, but I did want to bring up one point. We do focus a lot, or you, you have focused a lot on the podcast on expense ratios, and one thing that most financial advisors can provide is institutional 
share classes of mutual funds, which are generally a much lower expense ratio than what you and I would be able to buy as individual investors. So to prove out that point, I wanted to read off a couple of uh, comparisons of expense ratios between the Vanguard share classes that you generally talk about on the podcast and what the institutional share class equivalent expense ratio would be. So let's, of course, start with VTSAX, which is the example that you guys talk about a whole lot. So the expense ratio, and I'm getting these all from Morningstar.com, by the way, for VTSAX, I think you've mentioned this quite a few times, is 0.04%. The institutional, the lowest cost institutional share class is 0.015%. So less than half of the uh, expense ratio of the share class that you guys usually talk about. For the bond fund, the Vanguard Total Bond Market Index, which I believe Jim Collins brought up uh, on his episode, I think he said he has about 20% invested there in his portfolio. The share the share class that uh, is the Admiral share class, so the, the, the kind of the equivalent of the VTSAX, the expense ratio there, ticker symbol VBTLX, is 0.05. The institutional share class that a financial advisor would likely be able to buy for you is 0.013%. And to round it out, an emerging market stock index fund from Vanguard, symbol VEMAX, the expense ratio there for the Admiral share class is going to be 0.14% and institutional would be 0.09. So certainly we're talking about three, four, five basis points or 0.05% savings, which isn't that significant when we're already talking about very cheap Vanguard funds, which you guys have done a good job of broadcasting to your audience. But this is a kind of a hidden benefit to working with a financial advisor. Does it outpace the fees that they charge or the commissions they charge? Probably not. But if you pair that with the other value that they should be providing, you never know that that could um, sell some of your listeners into working with a professional. So I have a handful of other things that I want to touch on. You guys have done a good job of looping back around to some of the previous episodes and filling in the gaps, but I did want to kind of hit on one specific one today after the episode I just listened to. Thanks again. You guys are doing great. I'm learning a lot, so keep it coming. Yeah, Aaron, thank you very much. Appreciate the voicemail, certainly. I first want to say, especially when you said, you know, demonizing the financial services industry, I definitely wanted to touch on that. I certainly understand where that has come across. And I don't in any way want to denigrate an entire industry and many, many thousands or tens of thousands of of legitimately good men and women who are working hard for their clients every day. I think structurally, the financial services industry and financial advisors, it's a very difficult industry for for us to recommend anyone go to a financial advisor just because the fees are so significant. And of course, you mentioned clearly that there are instances to claw back some of those fees. But realistically, we all know that when you're paying a percent of your assets under management to your advisor, plus, as we've discussed previously, where they have to show their quote unquote brilliance, and that means they're going to trade a lot or they're going to be in expensive mutual funds because you're not paying them just to put money in Vanguard. Right. So that's just not realistic. It's just not the way that human nature works or incentives work. So and people are going to they're going to buy and sell. So there's going to be more tax ramifications for it. So realistically, for people in the FI community who are smart and educated and looking to learn more, we can in good conscience send them to the financial services industry. But that said, I don't think those are bad men and women working, working those jobs. I think they're doing the best they can by their clients based on the rules that they have to deal with. 
So again, don't want to ever demonize an entire industry. And also there are people that can benefit. There are many, many people out there that don't know anything about Phi, couldn't comprehend being on this path and they're adrift. And if the way to get them on track or at least reasonably on track is to have them meet with a financial advisor, well, maybe that's the lesser of two evils. And that is, is a big win that can help them down the road. So clearly not saying that financial advisors are bad for everyone, but I think for most people realistically in the five community, there's no place for a financial advisor in, in their life just because of the fees. Yeah. And I think in order to even have that conversation within the scope of the FI community, I think you would have to look at a, a fee only advisor. So I don't want to use that word too closely to what you just said, but someone that essentially charges you a flat rate instead of being a drag on your assets under management, it would be a flat rate because that's the only way that what Aaron has shared with us really works. Because if they're saving you 0.05 or four or five basis points, but then they're charging you 1% or 2% for assets under management, that math just got flipped upside down. So in the FI community, I think what you're looking for is someone that's charging you a flat fee, someone that's showing you all the tools that you didn't know existed and how you can actually manage those and is doing it for some sort of flat rate. That's the only way that I can visualize that would it would actually end up working out uh, for someone in our specific community. And yeah, Jonathan brings up a good point about fee-only planners and just hiring for specialized advice that maybe you don't have that you want to learn. And there's nothing wrong with that. Like I think a lot of people in the FI community are do-it-yourselfers, maybe too much so, maybe to their detriment. And like, here's a perfect, for instance, so even though my wife and I are both CPAs, we don't have the specialized knowledge based on our areas of taxation to deal with the the business taxation that, that we're faced with now in our lives. So we're actually gonna have a consulting call with, Keith from The Wealthy Accountant. And that's not inexpensive by any means. But to me, that's money well spent because I'm going to recoup that that fee many, many times over from the tax savings that I'm going to get from that knowledge. So I'm willing to pay, even though I'm a CPA, right? And I should be ashamed of myself in theory if I cared about such things for doing that. But I'll pay that money gladly because Keith has specialized knowledge that I do not have. So to me, that's an absolute no brainer. Yeah. So if he's not teaching you anything, then there's no value there. So he is helping you navigate this lane that you don't feel comfortable navigating yourself. And so if your financial advisor is doing that, then they have easily earned whatever fee you would pay them. But if it's assets under management, it's basically acting as a drag on your return. That's a tough sell for me. Okay, guys, so we like to finish our episodes by going over some reviews that we got on iTunes each week, and we actually do a drawing for this, and we would love for you to help us with this. Essentially, you're helping us, and we would love to help you. If you would be willing to just leave us a short uh, written review on iTunes and then just send us an email at feedback at choosefi.com letting us know that you did that, we would happily enter you in a drawing to win a, a copy of J.L. Collins' book, The Simple Path to Wealth. And this week, we have two winners, and we're going to go ahead and do this drawing now. You ready? for this, Brad? Yeah, let's do it. The first winner is Connor. And Connor called us the MVP of finance podcast. This podcast is like winning the personal finance lottery. The content Jonathan and Brad have to share with their listeners and the journey it sets forth is pure gold. 
They've corralled some of the most impactful minds in the personal finance space and have invited you to join in conversations where you will benefit from thousands of hours of research and experience, which will culminate with actionable advice. This is one podcast that can drive amazing changes for good in anyone's life. Jonathan and Brad brilliantly explore the commonly unknown and often fear-filled world of personal finance in ways that will bring incredible excitement. They do it all with a wonderful open mind as it is a journey for all and not a seminar. The only caution is that if you begin listening to these guys and their guests, your life will never be the same, but only for the better. Yeah, Connor, thank you. That is a fantastic review. We really appreciate you taking the time. Wow, that is that is really cool. And I love what he said about this being the culmination of thousands of hours of research. And that's the amazing part. On Brad and my end, that there's a lot of time that's been put in, but he is right. The Phi community has collated thousands, if not hundreds of thousands of hours of research and distilled it into a message that you can absorb. And if you do absorb it, it will transform your life. And then we are able to then just take all that research and then present it on this show by bringing the people on that actually did put the time in. Uh, And so every single time we have these conversations, we're able to get it even more focused, more actionable. And thank you, Connor, for sharing your thoughts with us. All right. And the next winner is Mrs. Fi with a twist. She said, best podcast on iTunes. Choose FI, my favorite podcast. When I found your podcast a few months ago, I totally binged on all the episodes. I have listened and re-listened to all the episodes, sometimes more than twice. I have to admit, with everything I learned from your show, I have turbocharged my savings. After listening to all the advantages of maxing all tax shelter accounts, I've put myself on a budget and it's looking pretty good that I might have some money left over to invest in my first taxable account ever. I am on fire. I really want to take the time to say thank you to both of you, Brad and Jonathan, for starting this podcast and sharing all this insightful information and life hacks. I love the tone of your show, the way you present the information from different angles that is useful for someone making 40,000 a year or 100,000 a year. I also had my 20-year-old daughter listen to the podcast with me, and now she has subscribed to your podcast and is super excited about starting her FI journey. She has put herself on a budget and will be using some of her paid internship money this summer to fully fund a Roth IRA. Friday Roundups are the bomb. I wish there were more stars to give this show. Wow. Thank you so much. Thank you for sharing that with us. You made my weekend. Well, my friends, that brings us to the end of this particular Friday Roundup. The fire is spreading, and we'll see you next time as we continue to go down the road less traveled. You've been listening to Choose FI Radio Podcast, where we help middle-class America build wealth one life hack at a time.